Some of you uh, may have realised if this is your first time at a Fellowship of Word and Spirit conference, people are not always that deferential towards those in authority. Um, I mean, I've never been like that, but um, others, others have. So, uh, so in all seriousness, though, it is important to us that we confer, and conferring involves agreeing and disagreeing. It involves thinking that what's been said is worth listening to, and it involves saying, are you sure? And therefore, I'm expecting some of that during and after uh, this session. We're, we're looking at Matthew together. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but it is quite important to us here at Fellowship Word and Spirit that we do just take that time to reflect to, together on what's said, uh, so that when we leave, we together have come to a mind on what will be useful to us, rather than just assuming that the person at the front, who happens to be speaking at that moment, um, is going to sort of solve all our problems and give us everything we need to go forward. So hopefully this will be uh, useful to you. What I'm going to do basically this afternoon is work through Matthew's Gospel, particularly getting to that bit in Matthew 20, but we will take a little while to get there. Uh, for, for various reasons, particularly that bit in Matthew 20, 28, about not like the Gentiles. We'll come to that. And what we're trying to do is we're thinking through what is it that Matthew wants to say to us about power and leadership and authority, and therefore, how do we take that away? And hopefully, and this is, where we'll, this is what we'll do in the seminar, if everything works according to plan, um, is that we can then think about how... Whatever it is we think Matthew's saying to us might help us think about what the rest of the New Testament is saying to us uh, as well. So in terms of the way the conference works, we, there's three f- sort of main sections to it. There's the bit I'm doing today uh, looking at the, the biblical material. Uh, the bishop is on tomorrow um, uh, looking at the theological material uh, and his own personal answer to the question, uh, who do you have to say yes to? Um, turns out that's the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and, um, and then third, George, I think you start Wednesday, no, do you start tomorrow evening looking at the, uh, at it from the third perspective? So we, we, these are supposed to be overlapping uh, perspectives. Um, one of the things that's really important to say uh, to begin with about the whole conference, actually, but also about this paper, is this is an exploration. Leadership is a massive subject area, And I think we'd have to acknowledge one that in the evangelical church, and that's not just the Anglican church, but certainly in the evangelical church in this country, a number of things have happened over the last few years which might suggest to us that we collectively haven't always got it right. That there are things about our practices and our assumptions that we might want to look at again. Not everything, not everybody, but enough's gone on to make you think, let's just make sure we've thought about this properly. One of the things that I think we have identified as a bit of an issue is the temptation to be a guru and to follow gurus. The temptation to be a guru is perhaps fairly obvious. The idea that others would hang off your every word is a a temptation. The temptation to follow a clear lead blindly is also a temptation we need to recognise. It is simple answers are often appealing, even if the simple answers aren't always the correct ones. 
So into that, we want to say, look, let's have a think. Let's have a think together. Let's explore some stuff. So this is, first of all, an exploration. It's an exploration, particularly in this first session of Matthew's Gospel. It's partial. There is no way that in the next 40 minutes or so, uh, we'll get all the way through everything that Matthew says, not even everything that Matthew says about leadership. So let's acknowledge that. Um, And it's focused, isn't it? Because actually... What we're really talking about is church leadership. Now, I know not everybody here is ordained. We've got a good mix of folk. But I imagine that most people in this room, if not everybody, will be involved in church leadership in some way. And if you're not involved in church leadership, you've probably or almost certainly been on the receiving end of some church leadership, for good or ill. So uh, that's what we're talking about. And yes, of course, uh, we're talking into our current context, although not desperately directly today George is going to talk a bit more tomorrow evening don't look at me blankly please I thought this is what we agreed uh, you're going to talk a little bit more directly tomorrow about our current context that's right isn't it thank you good before this starts to sound a little bit like the uh, Monty Python sketch about what the Romans have ever done for us uh, let's try and say something positive let me start in Matthew 20 I'm going to read verses 25 to 28 Uh, to you. This seems a reasonable place to start. Matthew 20 verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a number of things that are happening in this passage. Uh, there's Jesus talking about what's coming for himself when it comes to the cross, of course. Uh, and that's often where our uh, I and I suspect our preaching drifts for understandable reasons. But he's also offering here a critique of certain kinds of authority, isn't he? Not like the Gentiles. He's offering a critique of certain uses of power. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about leadership. Let me try and define what I think the relationship between the three of them is for the purposes of this paper um, and hopefully for the purposes of this conference. If we talk about power, authority and leadership, first of all with power, we're talking about the ability to do X in circumstance Y. That is the capacity to do something, to exert your will over someone else. Okay? If you can, to put it at its most basic, force somebody to do something else, you have power over them. The powerless are those who are not able to compel anybody else to do anything. So, for example, the government has police officers. They have power. They can arrest me if I do a crime, if I commit a crime. Authority, very much related, is the right to use power. Not every act of power comes with authority, does it? It's the formal and legal right to make decisions, to execute commands. So the government has properly constituted authority to arrest me if I commit a crime, but not to arrest me if I haven't committed a crime. So those police officers might always have the power to compel me, but they should only use that power to compel me at appropriate times. Okay so far? Listen, I'm sure there are other definitions of these words out there, I'm not too worried about that. I just want us to work to operate with a working definition at the moment. Power and authority. Now, where does leadership fit in? Well, leadership often, often obviously relies on power, 
obviously relies on authority, but is the personal exercise of power and authority for the benefit of something or someone else. So let me stick with that example again. It is right for the government to arrest me if I commit a crime and to bring me to justice for the good of society and so that justice is upheld. If the government does that, the government is showing appropriate leadership, using power, using authority for, in this case, the common good. Okay? All right with those? Rough definitions. Okay? Power, the ability to act. Authority, the sanction to act. Leadership, that personal exercise of power and authority. Um, And as we'll see uh, tomorrow, that personal element to it is critical A couple of other examples just to help us with this. If you uh, go back to the time of COVID, and hopefully we're largely out of the time of COVID now, think about all those discussions we had about whether vaccines could be mandatory, about whether it was right to close churches, who had the power and authority to do that, whether it was right to compel people to wear masks. Think about that discussion about, which isn't a discussion about whether it's right to wear a mask, so much as a discussion about can you be compelled to wear a mask. These are questions around power and authority, aren't they? And the leadership in that is making the right decisions uh, to achieve the right and good ends. Does a good leader compel his or all people to get vaccinated? You can discuss that later. It's all about that kind of issue. So let's have a look at Matthew's Gospel, uh, look at it together. The first thing I want to see uh, is Jesus' authority demonstrated and recognised. So uh, we're looking particularly exousia, but we're not going to. Don't worry, that's about as much Greek as you're going to get. Um, and we'll uh, we'll focus on some other stuff along the way. So let's just. I haven't given you a handout because you're all on electronic things anyway. So we'll start in chapter seven to nine. Jesus' authority demonstrated and recognised because in this section of Matthew we get a a, a, a setup, if you like, a, a, a paradigm. For Jesus' authority. So, Matthew 7, verse 29. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus has demonstrated his authority in Matthew 5 to 7, hasn't he? We've seen that. The Sermon on the Mount comes with authority. It's a teaching authority. It's a personal authority based on Jesus saying, I tell you. Compared to the scribes as the legal guardians of tradition. A scribe wouldn't say to you, I tell you. A scribe would say, so-and-so says. Jesus says, I tell you. Now, of course, as we know from, uh, from Matthew 5 to 7, that's not Jesus saying something that is contrary to that which has been written before, but it is Jesus' personal authority. It's also a compelling authority, isn't it? No one's supposed to read Matthew 5 to 7 and say, how interesting. You're not supposed to come to the end of it and think, well, I, I, that's, I'll, I'll, I'll bear that in mind. You're supposed to change, aren't you, as a result of your encounter with Jesus and his authority. Presumably Matthew, in writing his gospel, assumes that one of the things that Matthew 5-7 to, to do will do, as well as teaching people how to live, is force people to confront who Jesus is, that they might come to him. That's presumably one of the purposes of those chapters being in the gospel. Then as we move through Matthew 7 to 9, a little later, 
we get to Jesus demonstrating his authority in a different way. This is Matthew chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. Again, uh, a very familiar passage. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. We know the setting, don't we? Jesus heals the paralysed man to demonstrate his authority over disease, which of course points to his greater authority uh, over sin and death, his power to forgive. A number of themes that are familiar to us from the Gospels. Jesus as the Son of Man and all that that means, more on that later. Uh, Partial understanding from the crowd, we're used to that as well, aren't we, in the Gospels? And of course we're used to opposition from the authorities. Now, I take these settings in Matthew 7 and Matthew 9 as somewhat programmatic. That is, Jesus continues to demonstrate his authority through the Gospels, but Matthew doesn't always feel the need to tell us that the response comes in terms of Jesus' authority. He's not always compelled to say, ah, and the crowd said what authority Jesus has. That's been demonstrated, if you like, by now. Matthew doesn't always have to flag it. If you wanted a similar example, look at the the first three instances in in Mark's Gospel. Um, where Jesus' authority is demonstrated in chapters 1 and 2. But in the middle of that section, Matthew 7, Matthew 9, uh, there's another little instant in chapter 8, where Jesus' authority is recognised by someone outside Israel, by the centurion. His response to Jesus is as an authority figure within his own context. And that contrasts the way he responds to Jesus with the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice also, of course, that the centurion is a model of faith. He recognises his own unworthiness. He recognises Jesus' power to heal. In fact, he knows that Jesus can heal by a word. He knows there's no need for any manual acts. And as Matthew presents the centurion, the reason the centurion understands that is because he grasps how authority works. Matthew 8, verse 9. For I too... I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus marvels at this response, of course, and uses it to teach about faith compared to the faith of Israel in verses 10 to 12. Of course, the servant is healed. But notice this, notice that the centurion grasps the basic dynamics of power and authority as one who knows his own place within the chain of command. He can give orders and expect them to be obeyed, but also here, implicit is the recognition that he receives orders, and when he receives orders, he needs to obey them. Now, in the first century context, and frankly, for most of human history, In almost every society, that understanding of authority that the centurion has would be a shared understanding of authority. It goes without saying. Now, of course, recognising that this is how authority works isn't an endorsement of everything about Roman authority and about how Roman power is used. But it is recognising that here, the Roman centurion speaks Truth. This is how authority works. 
if you read those, that, let me read that verse to you again. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And as we come to the New Testament, we need to recognise that that shared understanding of authority across the first century world is not an understanding of authority that is shared by our world in the West, certainly. These words are somewhat countercultural, aren't they, from the centurion? This is one of the problems we have in this paper in talking about authority. Um, Rob is going to deal with some of those issues more in his paper. I'm going to say that a lot when I get to something quite difficult. Um, but but, uh, but he, no, no, in all seriousness, he will deal with that a bit more. But let's just at least recognise that this common, shared first century understanding, which in the pages of Matthew's Gospel is not controversial, does mean that properly constituted authority does give you a right to tell others what to do and to expect to be obeyed. That is how authority is supposed to work. And also, perhaps, like the centurion, we would be wise not just to recognise that, but also to recognise the other half of it, is that as well as having authority, we are under authority. Obviously, we'll come back to that in chapter 20. Just before we finish this section on Jesus' authority, though, notice where this ends up in the Gospel, because, of course, it ends up with Jesus' authority being questioned. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. Well, one example from Matthew 21, uh, where Jesus' authority is questioned by those whose exercise of authority is itself questionable. Uh, Matthew 21, verse 23, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd. For they all hold that Jesus was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Notice that this little section does two things. It demonstrates Jesus' authority because he speaks words which they're unable to refute. He is able to answer them. And there's a whole section here, isn't there, in Matthew? We know that where Jesus is doing that, demonstrating his authority. But it also demonstrates their failure to exercise authority correctly. Because not only have they misunderstood who John is, that is, they've failed to recognise him as a prophet. And Matthew's Gospel is very clear that that John is a prophet. So they fail to recognise who John is. They They don't have the courage to admit what they do think of John. Because they're fearful of the crowd. And that kind of pattern of expediency, uh, pragmatism, if you want to call it that, uh, uh, of secrecy, of cowardice, is something that crops up again. And then, of course, finally, we have to come to Matthew 28 here, don't we? Uh, And see Jesus' authority at the end of the gospel. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, 
to the end of the age. So what have we got so far? This brief summary of Jesus' authority going through Matthew's Gospel. These are very obvious points, and I don't think there'll be any disagreement with them. You can disagree with me if you want, but I think this is pretty much uh, what we already know. First, Jesus demonstrates his authority by word and deed. He speaks with authority, he he acts with authority. And and there are a number of occasions, aren't there, in the Gospels, where he, he backs his word with a deed. Uh, where the immediate deed, the healing of the man, uh, the paralysed man, is one example, isn't it? Where the, the immediate and more visible deeds points to something else that is also true about Jesus. Jesus' authority must be respected and responded to. It's, it's not optional whether you hear Jesus' authority and give him authority. His authority is not a gift of the person receiving Jesus. His authority is a given And then third, Jesus' authority is challenging for other authority figures and challenged by them. And again, that's such a theme throughout the Gospels, it goes without saying, but it's worth saying because it's true, isn't it, that Jesus' authority is contested constantly in the Gospels. Now, at this point, of course, we're all saying, yeah, no, man, this is fine. Um, And you might be thinking, James, why are you talking to me about Jesus' authority? That's not the issue. Uh, We're all agreed on Jesus' authority. Uh, Our issue is not with Jesus, hopefully. Our issue is with those uh, that a uh, former church warden of mine used to call them others. It's not Jesus that's the problem, it's them others. Well, that brings us to the second thing I want to say here. And to notice how Jesus' authority is given to his disciples. And in some ways this happens surprisingly early in the gospel. As early as Matthew 10, not that long into Jesus' public ministry, we read this, Matthew 10 verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. We know the passage, of course we do, Matthew 10. Jesus commissions his disciples to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Notice that Matthew calls them apostles in verse 2. That therefore makes the link with what happens later and their later commission in Matthew 28. Now, the authority in verse 1 of chapter 10 is stated to be over unclean spirits and disease, but given what happens and what is said in the rest of Matthew 10, they're clearly also given a teaching authority to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then notice how much of chapter 10 focuses on what will happen when they speak in Jesus' name. When they exercise their God-given authority, when they exercise their Jesus-given authority amongst the lost sheep of Israel, what will happen? Revival? Not exactly. Persecution and division. That's what will happen when they go out. Some will hear the call, others won't. The good news will lead to division even within families. Notice also here an emphasis on their authority as ones who are sent. So the disciples have authority because they are those who Jesus has sent. The authority they have is his authority. Verse 24 of chapter 10. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. 
if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? There is an identity between master and servant in how they're treated. Why? Because the servant goes and implements the will of the master. And that master-servant dynamic is a helpful one to think about here, isn't it? The servant, think about the centurion. I say to my servant, go, and he goes. And think, stick with the Roman centurion for a minute. When the, when the servant, the slave, gets to the other place where the centurion has sent him, and he has something to say, what does he say? He doesn't say, I've come. He says, the centurion sent me quite an important dynamic it's a very obvious dynamic but it's a very important one in terms of thinking about how authority works isn't it that is at the heart of the idea of apostle isn't it sent one sent by someone with the authority of someone again verse 32 of matthew 10 so everyone who acknowledges before men i will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven but whoever denies me before men i will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Notice here the identity of acknowledging Jesus and acknowledging God, which again is that dynamic of the one sent, isn't it? That to reject Jesus is to reject God because God has sent his son Jesus Christ. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So what happens in chapter 10? The disciples, the apostles, they go out in the name of Jesus with his commission, with his authority, and they also therefore ultimately go out in the name of God. To receive or reject the apostle, the sent one is to receive or reject Jesus, and to receive or to reject Jesus is to receive or reject God the Father. This is a pretty high view of authority, isn't it? But it's interesting because for the next few chapters, once you get into sort of chapter 11 and onwards of uh, Matthew's gospel, the disciples quietly drift into the background again. And sometimes as you read this section of Matthew, you could always imagine that they weren't really there anymore. We know they are, but as if it was only Jesus on the move. They're there at the start of chapter 12, plucking grain in the cornfield, but at that point really they're just a parable illustration. Or in chapter 13, they are recipients of teaching. In Matthew 14 and Matthew 15, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000, the, the disciples' main role is to fail to grasp what's going on. Peter tries to walk on water. Doesn't end well. He is devastatingly, actually, in Matthew 15, 31, he of little faith. Of course, then, we come to Matthew 16, don't we? And we know that it's in Matthew 16 that we hear Peter's confession of who Jesus is. And from that point, we actually get a greater focus between Matthew 16 and Matthew 20 of Jesus' teaching to his disciples, particularly teach Jesus' teaching to his disciples about authority and about what it means to be his followers. Notice as we get to Matthew 16, though, that it's not straightforwardly a move from failing to understand to understanding. Matthew 16 starts with uh, this failure to understand, doesn't it? As the disciples take these comments from Jesus about leaven very literally. 
it, it's almost comic the way they sit there going, is this because we forgot to bring Brett? When, as, as a reader, and I think you're slightly supposed to this, you're sitting there thinking, surely you can't think that it's, you know, given what's already happened, it can't be about that, surely. It's not really an auspicious start, is it, to a chapter which is going to contain this great confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. And of course, when we get to that confession, in the middle of chapter 16, we know that the response of the disciples to it, and Jesus' response to them, is somewhat mixed. So in verses 17 to 20 of Matthew 16, of course, we get Peter's, uh, Jesus' condom, uh, commendation of Peter. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this passage. Uh, this is all about Peter as the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, this has had uh, one or two uh, pages of ink spilt on it over the years. Uh, one simple comment. The authority Jesus gives to his disciples clearly carries over into the church age. And therefore it is legitimate, and Matthew 16, 17 to 20 is one of the passages which tells us this, it is legitimate to think about the keys of the kingdom as being held by the church. Now, of course, we then need to talk about precisely the limits and what that means and how that works. But it is legitimate to think in those terms, given that clearly the use of the language in church in Matthew 16 and the use of the language of church in Matthew 18 is very deliberate by Matthew and therefore helps us understand how what we're reading about in the Gospels has a continuity beyond Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay? Commendation, verses 17 to 20. But then, after Jesus tells Peter and the disciples what it means for him to be the Messiah, what's going to happen to the Son of Man? Well, Peter rebukes him, doesn't he, in verse 22. What is a rebuke to someone who has authority over you? Is it not at least in part a denial of their authority? Hence verse 23. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. As New Testament rebukes go... That's on the stronger end, isn't it? It's funny, isn't it, with these words of the New Testament? These are very familiar, and therefore, I'm not sure we really read get behind me Satan as get behind me Satan. We just read get behind me Satan, uh, that's really your hindrance to me. Get behind me Satan. At this point, Jesus identifies Peter as speaking to him the tempting words of the devil as the devil spoke to Jesus in Matthew 4. The temptation to have worldly power without the cross. The desire to have the cup taken away from him, that he might not have to drink it. You could argue, couldn't you, that that temptation appears in Matthew 4, it appears again in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it appears in the middle of the Gospel here. Hence, get behind me, Satan, because you are a stumbling block that's the better translation, really, of hindrance, isn't it? Hindrance sounds so weak. Stumbling block is what Peter is. And notice what Peter is doing. Peter is thinking of human things, not the things of God. There, is a, there, there, there are two ways to think about leadership here, aren't there? You can think about leadership the human way, which is the same way as the devil thinks about it in Matthew 4. Or you can think about it in God's way. 
And we can trace that basic contrast between the things of God versus the things of men through the next few chapters. This is very brief, okay? And we can talk about some of this more, but this is very brief, this section. So, for example, uh, you could follow the ways of the world and gain the whole world and lose your soul. Chapter 16, verses 24 to 28. Things of God, things of man. (coughs) Matthew 17, verses 1 to 21. Jesus shows some of his heavenly glory in the transfiguration. There is a, a, a visible sign that this is the Son of Man who has come from the heavens, and yet the disciples left behind lack the faith to cast out a demon. Because they're not thinking about it. They're not approaching it correctly. What happens when Jesus gets the cross? Well, uh, Matthew 17, verse 22, tells us that Jesus will be delivered into the hands of men. Then think about this temple tax. I remember preaching on Matthew 17, verse 24 to 27 for the first time. And I think I'd been in ministry for a few years. And I remember reading the story and, thought, and looking at it and thinking, I don't remember that being there. You know the one I mean. A very strange incident of the fish and the temple tax and finding the, finding the money in the, in the mouth of a fish. I remember preaching on it the first time thinking, I'm not, did someone just put that in? I don't remember that being there. It's it's a strange story, isn't it? But notice in the context how it fits in with this idea of authority. Does the son of the king owe tax? Of course the son of the king doesn't owe tax to anybody. Notice how that miracle not only means that the coins are available for Peter to go and pay his taxes in Jesus, even though, as Jesus says, he doesn't need to, but also validate the claim that Jesus is the son of the king Because not just anybody can send someone to catch a fish and pull coins out of its mouth. That doesn't happen every day. And then as we get into chapter 18, we're starting to see that this issue of the things of God versus the things of man is very much alive and well amongst the discipleship group. Because we have that question, don't we? Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? The answer Jesus gives is one who is humble like a child, verse 4. But don't miss here the strong warnings about leading others astray in verses 5 and 6. So all this stuff is, is alive in play in this section of Matthew, isn't it? Who is the greatest? The need for humility like a child. The danger of the leader. The danger that the leader is to others. Little ones are not to be led astray. They're to be nurtured, aren't they? Verses 10 to 14 of chapter 18. They're to be searched out like lost sheep. That's the kind of attitude that a leader is to have. We then get a discipline text in the middle of that in verses 15 to 20, don't we? That There is a point where, yes, you will need to teach one who claims to be a disciple like a Gentile or a tax collector, like one of the men, like one of the world. But notice... This is always an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? Because our eyes often tend to go to that text. Notice that it's followed by another forgiveness and restoration text. The parable of the unforgiving servant in verses 21 and 35. That's not accidental in chapter 18, is it? That a chapter which begins with this desire to be the greatest is followed by a call to humility, a warning about the dangers of leading others astray, two texts about mercy and seeking people out, and then only one text in the middle about the place of discipline. I don't think that can be accidental. Chapter 19, we get Jesus' 
very countercultural teaching on divorce, another text welcoming children, and that's a sharp contrast, isn't it, from the welcome, frankly, that the rich young man doesn't receive. Finally, we get to chapter 20 and we read the parable of the labours in the vineyard, don't we? And that's surely a rebuke to anyone who would emphasise their own status, to anyone who would say, we got here first, therefore we, de- we deserve more than those who've come later. Whereas the final passion prediction is an ironic introduction to Matthew 20, 20 to 28, isn't it? It's strange that this question from James and John via their mother uh, can come after that. So let's see where we're up to so far. And then I'm going to just go, go to take a little bit of questions just to kind of make you wake up slightly. Um, and then we'll move on to the third section. So what did we say about Jesus? We said that Jesus demonstrated his authority by word and deed. We've seen that. We continue to see that. This authority needs to be respected and it needs to be responded to. It is challenging for other authority figures. We then see that Jesus' authority is given to his disciples, to his apostles, and then to the church. Okay? We see that happening in Matthew's Gospel. We see, however, that the disciples consistently fail to understand Jesus' mission and Jesus' authority, and therefore their own role. Now, that's very interesting. On one level, we can resolve that in biblical theological terms, can't we? In the sense that there is a clear difference in the disciples, the apostles, before and after the resurrection. Okay, So we go to the book of Acts and we see some significant transformation. But it would, not, would it not also be a little reasonable to read that consistent failure to understand as a warning to us to be careful to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes as the disciples were making here when faced with the same kind of issues. And then notice that Jesus' teaching authority on authority emphasises forgiveness, restoration and humility and gives the sharpest rebukes to those in authority who lead others astray. Get behind me, Satan. And so forth. We're going to come to Matthew 20 in a minute. Any questions, particularly questions of clarification at this point? Just to break this up slightly. I know my voice is lovely, but you might just got a little bit tired. Some of you hear it far too much. So let's, we, might, we might think about opening that door as well, because it's getting a bit warm. Yeah, I think so. Is that all right? Thank you. Yeah, just open it. Anybody got any questions? Something that you've missed and gone, what is he talking about? <coughs> this is the point where... Oh, yes, please. Sorry. Just, just to help you out. Thank you, brother. Um, you said about um, apostles. Yeah. It's about who sends you. Yes. Is it appropriate to... Uh, yeah, I mean, whether, whether it's most useful to use that, the language of apostle, given that the New Testament doesn't, but certainly the, there's plenty in Matthew, and particularly John, isn't there, about Jesus being sent. I suppose you'd, want, you'd always 
you'd always want to nuance that slightly with Jesus because the big difference, of course, is that all of our authority, all of our, all of our authority when we are sent comes from Jesus sending us, whereas Jesus has his own authority as the sent one, as the son, and doesn't doesn't derive all his authority from his father in that in the same way um i'm I'm slightly nervous now because i'm not in john's gospel and i'm i'm uh, always always cautious when when i start to talk about the trinity um but uh, but i think that i think certainly i think there's certainly like in so thank you like in so many of these things uh there are parallels but but caution about how exact the parallels are somebody else had a hand up Yes. I was just going to say, yeah, you're right. Jesus has his own authority, but in John's Gospel, one of the overriding features is that he has the authority to represent the Father yes. almost in an ambassadorial role. Yes. And what's interesting towards the tail end of John's Gospel is that both the paraclete and the apostles, both hand in hand, then receive from Jesus the same delegated ambassadorial role. So I was even going to push you to say yeah, they're not just sent ones like the servant is sent from the centurion. It's more like the centurion sent an ambassador. Right? When when the apostles leave, they go in Jesus' power. Yeah. Although when Paul uses the ambassador analogy in, in 2 Corinthians... Five, then, then the, surely the background to that is the Roman ambassador. Yeah. And the Roman ambassador is the last person to be sent to the rampaging Germanic tribe and yeah. doesn't always come back in one piece. No. Um, I think so, yeah. I think within John's Gospel, and the question would be how much is that applicable to us, but in John's Gospel, Certainly, they have the people has the authority to find sins and set them free. That is utter authority. And I suppose, I suppose the and this is something we, this is this is something good for us to flag to talk about and think about some more, isn't it? Is 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 there a, is any of that does that does that authority ever become anything other than a delegated authority? Is it is it ever Peter's? as Peter or is it always Peter's as the one who Jesus sends which only sent you on a spiral as to the nature of Jesus' authority in the incarnate form because we always want to say he's got his own intrinsic authority and yet he says I only do what the father showed me I must do. I only do what the Father tells me to do. That sounds delegated, but we, we hesitate to push that one too far. And we do, and, and one of the reasons we hesitate to do that is because of the witness of the Gospels that Jesus speaks as one with authority, not as one who carries the authority, carries delegated authority. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, they, sorry, no, go on. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think Peter has intrinsic authority. And yeah, it's got a certain strength. Yeah. Yes. Said very helpful. This the contrasting with Gentile authority 
with the Jewish authority, with its understanding of law and fairness and you know, everything that comes from. And I'm just trying to think, I think it's very helpful, trying to unpack it in my mind, that our, our Christian you know, culture kind of thing, understanding authority, um, in contrast, in contrast with a total non-Christian Gentile understanding authority, which can also see, almost seem like Roman, totally brutal. Okay, which. Well, let's carry on then, because that's about what, what I'm about to talk about. So hopefully this will help with the unpacking. Thank you for that. No money changed hands. Right. Um, so here's, here's the third. Here's where we get to Matthew 20 at last. Uh, hey, a warning on the exercise of authority. So let's have a look at this passage, okay? Starts with a mother's request. That's very interesting, isn't it? it? No, it is just interesting that the request for authority comes from a different authority figure because the mother is an authority figure here when she speaks to her sons or her son's friends there is authority there and so she speaks almost as one authority figure to another very interesting Uh, and it's a request for seats of power for the sons of Zebedee it's there in verses 20 and 21 of Matthew 20 isn't it we we know the passage very interestingly, verses 22 and 23 should be enormously so- sobering for the two of them. Jesus tells James and John that they will follow him in suffering for the kingdom, but that the seating plan is in the Father's hands. That sobering lesson, which really, if the disciples had chosen to reflect on it, surely would have been sobering for all of them, um, doesn't come, does it? Rather, we get indignation in verse 24. And I've never really been able to see this as anything more than wishing that they'd thought of it first. I'm not really sure that the rest of the disciples uh, disagree with James and John's approach to power. They're just a little frustrated that they didn't get their mothers to ask for better seating. Maybe I'm being unfair to them. But I, these, a brief survey of Matthew 16 and to 19 has shown us that the, these power games and be going on for a while, haven't they? And so the lesson, let me read it to you again, uh, and then we'll unpack it. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here we get this phrase, uh, exercise authority. Uh, Exercise dominion, exercise authority over. Um, I'm taking this with lord it over as a critique of Gentile patterns of leadership. Um, I don't take this as a critique of legitimate authority. Not all authority is lording it over. That's a very important point in our modern context, okay? Not every exercise of authority is to lord it over. But misuse of authority is to lord it over. We'll go back into the Gospels to see this pattern in a minute. Second observation, very obvious. The disciples are to reject these Gentile patterns wherever they find them. 
and then instead to be great, to lead in context, they need to be servants, even slaves. And of course, the example of that which they follow is the example of Jesus. So what are the patterns of leadership to be avoided? And what does it mean to lead like Jesus? Let's have a look. What patterns of leadership are to be avoided? Well, what does it mean to lord it over? It must mean the opposite of using authority to serve. Those are the two contrasts, aren't they? Now, when we say, like the Gentiles, that will take us into thinking about Gentile leadership in Matthew's Gospel. However... There are plenty of examples of Jews behaving like Gentiles in Matthew's Gospel. We've just seen some of them from the disciples. And of course, with the centurion, there is examples of Gentiles behaving as they should. So I don't think we need to restrict our analysis in Matthew's Gospel just to those times when it's absolutely, definitely Gentiles who are doing this kind of thing. Uh, But I will pick two examples that are largely Gentile. And here I want to talk about two categories. One is overbearing. So leadership can be overbearing. That's an obvious application of James and John in Matthew 20, isn't it? It's a desire for status without the attendant implications of service. It is a desire for leadership as a way of lording it over it. This is leadership as power, status. They're looking for power, they're looking for authority, they're looking for the capacity to compel us, but they have no interest in leading, no interest in serving. We've seen this in Matthew 16 to 19, hinted at, if not already exposed. We see it nakedly in Matthew 20. And we see a couple of other examples, really obvious ones. The first is Herod, Herod in Matthew 2. The second is the Jewish leaders in Matthew 26. Now those are familiar enough passages to us, I think, that I'm not going to try and turn to them at this point. Okay? Notice parallels between them. In both instances, we have power. Herod is able to command the religious leaders to come before him and give this prophecy from Micah, and he is powerful enough to command his soldiers to murder the innocents in Bethlehem. There is no doubt about his power. The religious leaders have power in Matthew 26, ultimately. Yes, though they need the assistance of Rome, they have power to achieve their objectives against Jesus. Notice also in both cases, this is an act by a properly constituted authority. The king is the king. The high priest is the high priest. The king should deal with threats to the crown. That's one of the things that the king should do. And the high priest is responsible for right doctrine. So these are properly constituted authorities who might superficially look like they're acting rightly. But in both cases, there's a failure to lead because their leadership leads to the death of the innocent. And in both cases... The illegitimacy of the acts is flagged in the narrative. That's no great surprise, is it? So uh, in Matthew 26, verses 3 to 5, we read this. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. 
patterns. We saw this already a little bit earlier on, didn't we? We get plotting, we get stealth, and we get expediency. Fear of the people. Those, that pattern indicates what's going on here. That pattern of secrecy, that pattern of plot, plotting, that desire to operate by stealth, that willingness to act not by what's right, but by what will work. Or compare that to Matthew 2, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. My Herod voice might be slightly too influenced by watching uh, too many nativities. Um, it is funny how uh, all the boys get to a certain age and want to play Herod. Uh, but uh, but there, is that, there is something slightly slimy about Herod here, isn't there? Secrecy. Deception. Surely Matthew's telling us something about the kind of overbearing leadership that we're seeing here by indicating these patterns of behaviour. Then, of course, God intervenes directly in verse 12 in Matthew 2. There is a dream, and then we get to Herod's furious act in verses 16 to 18. The prophetic fulfilment again underlines what's really going on here. Finally, this section, I've already alluded to it, but it might just be worthy of a little glance at Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 to 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Here is overbearing leadership. You can have power over others. You can direct them. You can use your authority over them. And you are not leading because you are not serving. We can come back a little bit later to that link with secrecy, with deception and with expediency. So that is overbearing leadership. But as well as leadership which overbears, there is also leadership which is underbearing. I don't think that's a word, but let's track it. It is now, okay? Underbearing leadership because it fails to lead. We've already noted this as a potential issue, haven't we, in our comments on the centurion. The, the, the dynamic of leadership that he understands that to us feels countercultural. And there are examples in the New Testament in Matthew of the same kind of thing happening. Come with me to Matthew 14 and Herod the Tetrarch. And what happens to John the Baptist? So we know the background. John has been imprisoned because he continued to speak courageously and Herod doesn't want to hear him uh, and so he puts him in prison. Verse 5 of chapter 14 sums Herod the Tetrarch up. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. It also, if you notice, draws a direct parallel between Herod the Tetrarch and the Jewish leaders later on who also feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. But he makes this rather unwise promise to the daughter of Herodias in his cups and in the midst of his lust, who asks for the head of John the Baptist. See what Matthew tells us next in Matthew 14, verse 9. And the king was sorry 
But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. The text emphasises, doesn't it, Herod's weakness. Herod is not driving Herod, is he? Herod is driven by his desires, by his lusts, by his, uh, well, his desires and his lusts. And he makes decisions based on expediency again. He doesn't wish to lose face because the guests were there, because everyone was looking on, because he'd made this rash promise, he felt obliged to go through with it. And of course, he also reveals his character in how callous and outrageous he is in the treatment of John's body. But he fails to lead. What does it mean to say that Herod is sorry here? It means that Herod knows what he should do. He knows precisely what he should do. But he's too weak to do it. Instead, he goes along with it. He goes along with John's death. Now, that leadership might look superficially strong, mightn't it? Because you might, as your executive summary, say, well, uh, yeah, Herod actually had John the, Baptist, uh, uh, John the Baptist beheaded because he opposed him. And that sounds strong, but actually, when you read the narrative, it's weak. It's underbearing. It's a failure to lead from the other side, isn't it? And, of course, the most famous example in Matthew has to be Pilate. Matthew 27. Let's just read the last bit. Matthew 27, 24 to 26. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Uh, Three very quick observations here. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. We know that by this point, Pilate knows. But he's not managing... Uh, to get him freed so he has him killed anyway the washing of hands doesn't work Um, history tells us that Pilate is not able to wash his hands of the death of Jesus he remains guilty of it yes we know of course that there's more going on here the crowd uh, is accepts responsibility for Jesus death and you can probably make the link here can't you between Uh, this and what happens later on in 70 AD and so forth. Um, And then one final observation. Uh, There is a strong leader here, Barabbas. He's the strong leader that everybody's after, isn't he? He's the one who compels others what to do. Uh, He has power. Of course, Barabbas lacks authority. This is underbearing leadership. Pilate's weak. He fails to lead. He dresses it up as leadership. He makes it look like He's in charge of what's going on, but he's not. We could pick other examples. These are two of the main ones. But I hope these are sufficient to illustrate the point. Overbearing leadership, underbearing leadership. What does it mean to lead like Jesus? Well, let me be briefer here, because we've spent quite a bit of time on this uh, already. You can probably guess where this goes. We don't want leadership which overbears, We don't want leadership which underbears. We want leadership which bears. Yes, that's even better, but I'll stick with bearing. Bears. Okay. 
This is servant leadership, isn't it? Servant leadership bears the burdens of others. From Matthew 20 onwards, if we just very quickly project into Matthew 21, we see a number of examples of this. Of course, in the passage where we talk about the Son of Man, we talk about Jesus' humility, not insisting on his rights. This is such a prevalent dynamic in the Gospels, okay? that Jesus Christ, despite being who he is, does not insist on his rights. It's surely one of the things that's going on in Jesus' general silence before his accusers. Take the implications of any of the passion predictions. Think about a passage which says the Son of Man will be delivered. How is it possible for that figure from Daniel 7, for the one who receives all authority from the Ancient of Days, how could that figure be delivered into the hands of anybody unless the Son of Man himself allowed that to happen? It's not possible, is it, for the Daniel 7 figure to go anywhere where he doesn't want to go. The Son of Man will be delivered. Immediately after uh, the pronouncement about the Son of Man being delivered into the hands uh, we get the compassion of chapter 20, verse 29 to 34. It surely is not, exam- it is not accidental, is it, that, that when uh, Jesus meets the man born blind there, his question is, what do you want me to do for you? That is a compassionate question, isn't it? And then on his way into Jerusalem in chapter 21, Jesus shows his power and shows his authority uh, and that he has the right to exercise it. He organises the triumphal entry He cleanses the temple and he receives the praise of children. So here is one who truly has authority and yet it's also one who acts with humility and compassion. And of course, as we've already said, the supreme example of all this comes on the cross where Jesus Christ bears our sins and dies in our place. And of course at this point we say, and we can't do that. We can't bear anybody's sins. But we can bear, can't we? And that is what leadership is called to do, okay? To bear. It is that personal exercise of servant leadership which doesn't overbear by demanding demanding power, doesn't underbear by refusing to lead as one should lead, but bears, pays the cost, takes the path that that, that one is called to take. So, what I'm going to do, I'm going to finish very, very soon. I'm going to give you some sort of summary conclusions. And then we'll do some Q&A. And then we'll stop. And I'll talk about what we're going to do this evening. Six observations to finish. These are all sentences, don't worry. Okay? Two from the nature of Jesus' authority. Okay? We've talked about this. Any authority we have as church leaders is delegated authority... And has more authority because of that. Okay? Because it's Jesus' authority, not ours, it is a particular kind of authority. Second, as Jesus' authority challenged other authorities, so if we lead rightly, we are likely to find ourselves challenging others and in challenging situations. Perhaps counterculturally, we should not expect appropriate leadership to lead to still waters and green pastures. I think this is worth saying. I've read a lot of leadership books over the years, and I've found a lot of them enormously helpful. 
But one of the dynamics in some of them is the idea that if you get your leadership right, it will all be peace and tranquility. Now, we must assume that Jesus got his leadership right. But it did not lead to peace and tranquility. I think we just need to say that. The fact that there's conflict does not necessarily mean that the leadership has been bad. Two from the delegation of authority. Three, we have been given authority, but we must be wary of misunderstanding and misusing it, like the disciples do. And four, I've said this again, let me just repeat it. Jesus' teaching authority emphasises forgiveness, restoration, humility, and sharply rebukes those in authority who lead others astray. Some of Jesus' sharpest words are about those who lead others astray. And from when we did eventually get to Matthew 20, uh, what did we say? A couple of things. I am intrigued, at the very least, between the links here between bad leadership and deceit, secrecy and expediency. There may be times for secrecy. There may be times to act like serpents. But... They all, these things also seem to be identifying characteristics for bad leadership. It's one of the things that you look out for. And of course, good leadership does not underbear and it does not overbear. It bears.